And as we approach the memory of Christ's birth, which in actual fact isn't really in December as far as people can see, but it's the time that we celebrate it, and that's, that's completely fine. Uh, as we approach this time, I was sort of saying, Lord, as we close out 1 John, and as we close out the series that we've been doing in 1 John, what, what do you really want, want us to look at as we head towards uh, looking at Jesus coming to earth? And so what's interesting is, is as I was just praying and I was looking through 1 John and looking through the passage of the rest of 1 John 5, uh, I, I think we're probably going to look at something slightly different. But I trust for those of you who've been in 1 John that you've really been encouraged in what our tagline was, is confident. That you've, encouraged, that you've been encouraged and challenged in what gives you confidence in the faith that you have. Because that's what we've really been looking at. And, and 1 John is, in many respects, a defense of the gospel. In many respects, it's been John writing to churches scattered around Ephesus. And there's been different false teaching rising up. And he's been saying, actually, guys, I'm an eyewitness to what happened. This is the reality. This is what Jesus did. This is what he did on the cross. And it's for real. And don't listen to any of the other side things. Keep the main thing the main thing. And so we've been, we've been looking at that. And last week... As I headed into this week, we looked at the, the tra- what, what leads to having a transformed life is firstly a real belief, a true belief in who Jesus is, in what the Bible's all about. And the reason why I say true belief is because true belief leads us to action. And I had a great chat with, uh, with, with, a, with a great friend this week, and we were talking through 1 John, and we were talking about what, what it means, what, what John says means between light and darkness, and between life and death, and he's very strong on it. And what John's really saying is that it's impossible to have true belief without action. He's saying the two, the two go hand in hand. So it's impossible for you to say, I'm a Christ follower, but not to follow the commands of Christ. Can't happen, because it means that your belief in who Christ is isn't a real belief. It's a pictorial one. It's fictional because true belief leads you to follow that which um, the person speaks about. And so uh, I hope that as you go back and as you look at the end of the series, as we dive into it a bit more, you'll be able to analyze in yourself, where's my belief at? Is it real? Isn't it? Do I have a love for this God that I believe in? And equally, as we follow from that, am I excited to obey his commands? Because it's impossible to go, oh, I, I love you, Jesus. I believe in you. And it says there, uh, you know, that I shouldn't gossip, but I love gossiping and I'm going to do it anyway. We might m- make mistakes. We might mess up. We might gossip by accident um, or, you know, sin, sin jumps in. But then our immediate response is, Lord, I'm so sorry. I know that your word says that I shouldn't do this. Please help me to live the right way. And that's the challenge that each of us will have to face. And so what I wanted to look at today is, interestingly, who God is. And if you have your Bibles in 1 John 5, we looked in the first little part as we went. And you can just keep up that. That's there at the moment. In fact, I've got this. Thanks, Kev. And at 1 John 5, verse 5, and we're going to lead into it, and we're not actually going to spend a lot of time in 1 John 5. It says in 1 John 5, verse 5, it's spoken about overcoming the world. Then it says, who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Then it goes on, and, and, and 1 John, say, this is what he says. He says, this is he who came by water and by blood, by water, human birth, blood, sacrifice, Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies, because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, and the water, and the blood. These three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his Son. 
And what I love as we've gone through 1 John and as we look at that short bit that I read to you is you notice uh, John talking about God as Father. You notice him talking about the Spirit. You notice him talking about God as Son. And it really led me in the last few weeks to study who God is and what the Trinity is really about and how that reflects the way in which we live. And we're going to dive into the Trinity this morning as much as you might think it's rather strange. I really felt the Lord was leading us to it. And so we're going to share on it. And as we share on the Trinity, we're not talking about how many people have watched The Matrix. <laughs> Scary one. I was talking with Sarah and we are seeing how many have actually watched. Is there like only three people? Four people? Five? Be brave. This is a brilliant... If you guys haven't watched The Matrix, you've missed out on life. So I mean, whether you're 70 or 80 or anything else like that, you guys have honestly missed out on life. So you need to go and get hold of The Matrix and watch it. So... One of the key characters is called Trinity, and that is not who we're talking about today when we talk about the Trinity. So we're not diving into that, but actually that sort of semi fell flat because there was like five of you who've watched one of the best <laughs> movies of all time. It comes down after Braveheart and Gladiator and things, but, uh, but the Matrix is there. It's just terrible that you guys haven't watched it. So anyway, it is not that, and the Trinity is not actually found in the Bible. If you search through the entire Bible, you will not find the word Trinity. And the reason is, is because Trinity was just created, it was developed by scholars, by Bible scholars, to describe who the Christian God is, to describe the fact that he is different to any other God, to describe who he is. And so the Trinity describes the Christian Godhead, and the Bible clearly affirms the existence of three distinct persons as one God. Mind-blowing. And that's what the Bible clearly dictates. We're going to look at it. But the Trinity is used to describe three distinct persons as one God. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. But there's only one God. And that's the biblical doctrine of the Trinity. And you might be asking, well, is that really that important? Because to be honest, for the majority of my life, I haven't really thought it is. And it's been these few weeks where I've gone, I really need to dive a bit deeper that the Spirit has led me to. And from a young age, I've heard of many different explanations of people trying to, with good intentions, trying to explain to me what the Trinity is. And I've also done this to other people as well. So I had to say, okay, Lord, I don't think those were the best illustrations. But there's been one that's been around and, and it was told to me of like, the Trinity is like an egg. And there's the shell and there's the white and there's the yolk and they're all sort of different, but they all make up the egg. And I was like, oh, great illustration. And I told it to other people. I didn't really think it through. And then suddenly I was thinking it through these past few weeks. And I was like, but that doesn't really make sense. Because either when I pray to God, I'm going to think he's a bit like an egg, which I don't think is what I'm supposed to be thinking. Or that means that he's a shell. But when he's a shell, he's not the whole egg. And then the shell is very different to the yolk. But actually, if you look at a shell and a yolk, they look nothing like an egg at all. So it's like that is the worst description of what it could be. And I've told this to many people as well. So I had to apologize for that. And then other people have come up with one which is sort of the water one, the H2O description of the Trinity. And this one is like God is water, right? But then at certain times, he's liquid. And then at certain times, he's steam. And then at certain times, he's ice, so there's like these three different parts, all water, but all God. And I was like, this is brilliant. I'm going to tell everyone that I know about this. This is the best illustration. It's finally come to me. And uh, then when I was thinking about these last few weeks, I was like, but that also doesn't make sense because when water is liquid, it can't be steam. And when it's ice, it can't be liquid. 
It's impossible. So whilst it might be a nice analogy, it doesn't fit with the terminology of the Trinity where there's three distinct persons but one God. It doesn't fit at all in the description. But I still liked it. And then there's also one which is the shamrock leaf. St. Patrick, some of you might have heard of him. And this is probably the one that gets maybe the closest. But, he, you know, the shamrock leaf, he was trying to defend who God was. And he, the story goes that he looked down one day and he saw the shamrock leaf. And he was like, ah. Oh. Picked it up. He's like, you see, guys, this is the Christian God. And a shamrock leaf, if you don't know, has three little sort of prong leaves that come out from the main one. He was like, you see, there's, there's the God sort of at the base and then, then jutting out from it, there's the other three angles. So there's the Father and there's the Son and there's the Holy Spirit. And that, that's probably one of the better examples that you can sort of get, but it still doesn't make sense because as they go out, they're actually not linked at their edges at all. And so people have tried to describe it by using earthly things and have never really got to describing the Godhead. So I'm not going to try with a new illustration, just so that you know. There's a number of others, and I, I, I might share some later. But as a child, this sort of didn't really make sense to me. And actually, as I sort of used to describe it to people as teenagers, it also didn't make the greatest amount of sense as well. Because then, as I said, I'd either pray and go, well, I don't want this picture of this egg to be in my mind when I'm praying. And then also just water. That also doesn't make sense when I'm thinking about God. Or leaves as well. So all of these illustrations that are used to describe your God is just didn't do so well. And then when I'm praying, am I praying to the Father or to the Spirit? Or is He different at different times? Or, you know, then I've left out the Holy Spirit, but I forgot to pray. You know, you, you can just get confused as a child as you're hearing these stories. And some of you might be confused even now as we sit here. And so what we end up doing is we end up going, okay, I don't really understand this, and so I'm going to leave the Trinity sort of on the shelf in my house, as it were, of Christian faith, because it's kind of a bit strange. I'm, I'm almost a bit ashamed of it, or if someone asks me about it, I don't really know how to explain it. So I'm just going to sort of ignore that part of my Christian faith, and let's focus on things that are more understandable, because the mystery and what I can't describe, I'm a little bit uncomfortable with. But today, we're going to dive into it. And the reason is, is because as Christ follows here, and if you aren't, I hope that you'll be one at the end of the service, or that this will cause you to dive into the Christian faith more. But as Christ followers who believe in the Christian God, in particular the Trinity, it's actually the most essential element of our faith. It is. Believing in the Trinity is more essential than anything else in the Christian faith. And this is why. Because there's actually many other faiths that have certain elements of the Christian faith, but none have the element of the Trinity. None believe in the God that we believe in. And I say their God as little God because I do believe that the Christian God is the only one. For example, there's many faiths that have similarities. So the Jehovah's Witnesses believe in the sacrificial death of Christ on the cross. They do. They believe in sacrifice. They believe in death on the cross. Mormons believe in the resurrection. Islam believes in a God who created everything. But none and no other faith believes in the Trinitarian God. None. It's the most essential element to our faith because it's out of that that everything we believe flows. We're going to dive into that a little bit more. So firstly, some biblical basis for the Trinity. We've seen in 1 John as we've gone through it, God spoken of in different terms. Look at this. So... There's a little definition that I obviously put up, the existence of three distinct persons that are all identified as one God. The Father is God, Jesus is God, the Holy Spirit is God. One God. Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. So this is the talking about the Trinity as one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One God. Biblical. Isaiah 46 verse 9. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. 
singular. I am God. That's, that's how God is talking as himself. But what about one God, three distinct persons in the Godhead? Galatians 1 verse 1. Paul, uh, an apostle, not from men nor from man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. So there's a number in there. There's Jesus Christ is God the Father, but I particularly want to look at him calling him God the Father, distinct person in the Trinity. John 1 verse 1 to 3, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. This is talking about Jesus Christ. He is God. He was God. From beforehand to past, He is God. And then talking about the Spirit, I love this as I dived into it. Acts 5 verse 1 to 4, so interesting. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said to Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? So now at the moment we're reading, you could be going, okay, the Holy Spirit is a little bit different, probably not God. Uh, and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Talking about the Holy Spirit as God, equally God. We're going to talk a bit about the Holy Spirit a bit later because um, he can sort of be the freaky force, you know, <laughs> which uh, he isn't. He's God. So we'll, we'll look at that a bit more in depth. So that, that's the Godhead, right? Now let's look at the Godhead operating together, all at the same time. So working together. Genesis 1 verse 26. Then God said, let us. So this is talking, God, God is talking in plural sense, in himself in plural sense, make man in our image. Very interesting. Matthew 3 verse 16 to 17. One of the best passages to look at it, but when Jesus, God in the flesh, was baptized, immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, de descending like a dove, and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I'm well pleased. You have the Godhead operating together in unison, and being able to see from all angles. And then finally... This is Jesus talking before he went um, back to the Father. And he says, but when the Helper comes, this is the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father. So he's talking, the Holy Spirit sent to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. He will bear witness about me. So he's Jesus talking, God in the flesh, talking about God the Father who's sending the Spirit, who we know is God as well, interacting together. So the Bible clearly teaches that there is one God identified as three distinct persons and furthermore the bible is full of references of loving submission between so these aren't some static forces this isn't a static god this is a god of love and this is where we're going to dive into the incredible importance of the trinity in our understanding loving and serving together john 17 verse 24 this is jesus talking in one of the most amazing prayers in the Bible before he was uh, handed over to die. And he says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, this is talking about Christ followers, those who are going to become Christ followers, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me. So this is Jesus praying to the Father, and it's a love relationship. The relationship with the Father and the Son and the Trinity, Holy Spirit as well, but he's speaking here, because you loved me, 
before the foundation of the world. We're going to come to why before the foundation of the world is so important as well. And then look at what the Holy Spirit does also in the area of love. Ha, before that. Miss Wright, uh, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of Him who sent me. That's showing a bit of hierarchy in the Trinity, because the Father does definitely take the lead role. But the Son only does what the Father wants, and the Son loves to do what the Father wants Him to do. And so there is hierarchy in the Trinity, but you can see here that it's just a love relationship. I just want to do what my Father has for me to do. And here in Romans 8, verse 15, this is the Holy Spirit, and this is what it says. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Daddy is the closest translation, Father. So what the Spirit does is He inflames the love of the Father and the Son together, and He inflames the same in us, so that we're able to cry, Daddy, when we think of God. So that's what the Spirit does, love-focused as well. So that's the loving and serving. But one other important thing that, I, that I'd like to make is that the Holy Spirit is just as much a person in the Trinity as the Father and Son. Just as much a person in the Trinity as the Father and the Son. And due to His name, and also people calling Him the Holy Ghost, there is sort of this air of freaky ghostishness about Him. And sadly, it's actually what's turned many people to not be excited about what the Holy Spirit does. Firstly, because of the terminology and the sort of thought that He's a bit strange and He's really very separate to the Father and the Son. He's not, he's not really God. It's a bit like, you know, he's, he's used by God, but He isn't actually God. And so people shy away from it. And then the other reason why He's shied away from is because of abuse in church life of some of the gifts. And that doesn't make logical sense. And I hope for us as a church it doesn't as well. Just like, I'll use my KFC analogy, just like people may become obese from eating too much KFC, it doesn't suddenly mean that eating a KFC burger is the problem. Just because airplanes or, or, or weaponry may be used for the most horrific of things doesn't mean that the weapon itself is a problem. It's how it's being used. And so if you've heard of abuses of the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, as it were, and you've been scared away from the Holy Spirit because of that, I want, I want to challenge you and I want to say to you today to look at the Holy Spirit, not the abuse. Because what you see in the Bible, you should be so incredibly eager for. You should be eager for any, any part of the Trinity. You should be so eager for what God has through the Holy Spirit. And so I don't want you to be scared because of abuse. Look at who the Holy Spirit is. Look at this. This is what's so interesting. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was on the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So the Spirit was there at the beginning. The Holy Spirit, just as much God as Father and Son. 1 Corinthians 2 verse 10, look at what some of the person type things the Holy Spirit is involved in. I hope it takes away the concerns for you. But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. So the Spirit brings us understanding. He brings us wisdom. He searches. He looks for things. Something that a person would do. 1 Corinthians 12 verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as He wills. 
So this is the Holy Spirit, and it's talking about gifts, and he's distributing, he's choosing. I'd love to give that to that person. I'd love to give that to that person, and he's making the calls on it. He's deciding. Doesn't sound like a force to me at all. Ephesians 4 verse 30, and do not grieve the Spirit of God. He has emotion. He gets upset. He gets sad. Same as father, same as son. And on his way home, uh, and on his way home, we're sitting in the chariot reading the book of Isaiah, the prophet. The Spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near. Sounds like a person type thing to me. He spoke. He speaks. He spoke to Philip and said, please can you do this? So I trust that just sharing a little bit on that, as far as we go with the Holy Spirit, you're starting to go in your mind, if you've been concerned before, or where, where does he fit? That he's just as much God as Father, Son, equal in the Trinity, and he's person-like. He isn't a weird, strange force. There's many others of him talking as well. I haven't got it up there, but look at this, talking about Paul, and they went in Acts 16.6. They went through the region of... Uh, Frigga, how would you say that? Frigga, Phrygia. Phrygia, thank you, Ian. Ian the scholar, thank you. Uh, and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit. It's Paul talking. The Holy Spirit wouldn't allow him to go where he wasn't supposed to go. So he was involved and active. And Acts 13 verse 2, in a setting where they were having a prayer meeting, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work to which I have called them active in decisions, where people should go, where their gifting is, how they can reach the most people for Christ. It's also important that we understand that the Trinity has always been. And as I'm, as I'm getting towards the end, you'll see why it's so important. It's not that the Father was there at the beginning, and then He decided to create the Son. And then He decided He needed an add-on of the Holy Spirit, so that He would be complete. They always have been. And this is what many faiths just don't get and completely struggle with. For instance, in, 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 in some of the surahs in Islam, they say, how can God beget and be begotten? I.e., God can't have a son. What are you talking about, Christians? There's many others who say um, that God created Jesus. He created the son. It's not biblical. It's not what we believe. And this is why it's so important that we understand this. I want to take a quick reading from someone who spoke about the Father, Son, and Spirit always being there. A man called Gregory of Nyssa, and when he's talking about Hebrews 1 verse 3, which says that the Son is the radiance of, the God, of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Look at what this 4th century theologian says. He says, as the light from the lamp is of the nature of that which sheds the brightness and is united with it. In brackets, for as soon as the lamp appears, the light that comes from it shines simultaneously. He's saying you can't separate them. The radiance of a light bulb cannot be separated. It's instant. As we turn on the light, the radiance is there as the light is there. So in this place, the apostle, talking about Hebrews 1 to 3, would have us consider both the Son is of the Father, and the Father is never without the Son. For it is impossible that glory should be without radiance, as it is impossible that the lamp should be without brightness amazing and he's affirming saying that this trinitarian god that we believe in as christ followers was always there it wasn't about creating and someone coming later was there at the same time and you might say well why is that so important 
Why is it so important that the Trinitarian God was there and there wasn't creating and being created? What's the big deal? Well, to understand, we need to play a bit of the devil's advocate. We need to imagine that we serve one God, no distinct persons. So for now in your minds, we just imagine that there's one God, no distinct persons, and many other faiths would believe. In fact, all of them except the Christian one. This would be similar to the belief of Islam. Or possibly many people who would throw out a God bless on a regular basis. So for most people around the world who maybe have an idea that there is a God but don't believe in Him, they would maybe just throw out that, oh, God bless you, or you know, when something hard's happening, oh, I'm praying for you. And their image of God is probably a singular God as would be with Islam and any other faiths. So just imagine, for instance, that's the God who we serve and who created us. Well, what sort of relationship could we have with a God like that? Our relationship would be a creator-created relationship. That's what it would be. So it would be much like a policeman. It would be rules and regulations. It doesn't have to be horrible rules and regulations, but that's what it would be. And policemen is probably not the best example for us, firstly because you can't find one now to, uh, <laughs> to find as, a, as an example, but I'm sure they're going to be coming back soon uh, and, and hopefully better than they've ever been. So it's, it's harder to describe in our context because you know, the, you'd struggle to find one for us to look at. And it's also hard in our context because majority of the time the policemen have been the last ones you would go to for help. So just imagine that we're in a country where the police force are the first you go to when you need help and you know you're not going to get tried on a bribe and things like that they actually want to help so imagine that that's the scenario now even if you have a great policeman who really cares for you he really wants to serve you wants you to do the right thing he cares for the population he wants it to operate smoothly there's a few options that you can have but firstly he can be happy with you if you toe the line and that's a policeman a policeman is happy if you do what the policeman has asked you to do and he's happy with you if you step out of line there's obviously punishment or, for instance, in a Zimbabwean case, but also in others, you might be super chuffed if you get away with paying for something that you, didn't, you, know, that you don't have to pay for anymore. So he lets you off something. You know, you're speeding, but you have a nice chat, and he's like, oh, you know what? You look like a nice person. Don't worry about it. Whew, relief. I got away with something that I should have paid. But that's the relationship that we can have if it's a singular God. That's it. Because you can't create that which you don't know. And so a singular God doesn't know what love is and isn't able to have the capacity for love because who's he loved? No one. So he's only got the capacity to create and he could be a good creator, he could be a good governor, but not love. There's no opportunity for that because you can only give that which you have. And so we come to, and this is what, this is what Islam actually really struggles with because Islam says in their listings of what Allah is like. They say that he is loving. But the question is, how is it possible that Allah loves when there's nothing for him to love on before the world began? There's no relationship that's possible. So when Allah created, we are the created beings. We need to toe the line. And that is Islam. You need to follow the rules. You need to follow the regulations. And if for some reason you've done well enough, you might be accepted in paradise. That's Islam. There's no confidence, like we're talking about in 1 John. There's no belief or there's no true hope because it's not based on a loving relationship that started with God. So with that scenario, it's impossible for you and I to have a loving relationship with God. If he's not loving in and of himself, he would have no capacity for that to overflow into all creation. No capacity. You can only give that which you have. Creation was the display 
Sorry, I jumped a little bit. And this is one of the greatest strengths of the Christian faith. We know that love is true. We feel it. We sense it. So yes, people may argue and say, listen, we're just molecules. We bump together and that's it. And that would be the, the atheist point of view. We'd just say we are molecules bumping together. There's no reality to it. But I know that deep down, each of us know that we have feelings. We know that we love. We know that we receive love. We know that we feel rejection. We know we face it. There's no human on the world who actually, when you spoke to them, would say, I don't believe there's any emotion. It's all false. I don't feel any emotion. Everyone does feel it. But where did that emotion come from? Where did the capability for us as humans to give and receive love come from? It's impossible to come from a God who doesn't know and understand himself love. And that is one of the greatest points that you can direct anyone to when it comes to believing in the Christian faith is where did our capacity to love come from, to both give and receive love? Well, it came from a God who that's his DNA. And when he created us in his image that we looked at, we received his DNA, the DNA of a loving God. And so when you look at the Trinity, the reason for creation suddenly becomes crystal clear. Because I've spoken to many people who just say, I, I just don't really know what's the point or why we're here or why does earth happen. When you understand the Trinity, it makes sense because God's creation was an overflow of his love. So when he is love in and of himself, it says God is love and he's loving in the Trinity, the one Godhead, three distinct persons, loving each other, perfect love and perfect submission. The overflow is to create love. The overflow is to create a world where love is possible, to create people where love is possible. And it's just an overflow. He didn't need it. If you're a God or one God like the situation with Islam or others, there's only two reasons why you would create. One, you're lonely. Two, you want to rule people. So two options. That you're either lonely and you go, I really needed this world, so I'm, I'm not okay by myself. I need other people. Or secondly, I want to create because I want to rule. I want to govern. I want power and authority. Those are the only two options, whereas when there's the Trinitarian God, which we believe in, love flows out of it. And love of creation and us is the overflow. And so creation was the display of love from a God so full of love and joy that he couldn't help but let it overflow to us. He couldn't help but let it overflow into creation and creating us and creating us in his image with his DNA. And so when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, it wasn't per se an act of disobedience yes it was but you know what it really was it was them changing who they loved none of us stopped loving what Adam and Eve did in the garden when they disobeyed God is they chose to love themselves and not love God they chose a selfish love rather than a selfless love so it's not that we stopped loving it's not that sin in the world has created us to stop loving it's just we've changed who we love if you look at the root of sin, you look at root of the mess in the world. It's a root of selfishness rather than selflessness. But the love is in our DNA. We can't change that. But what sin does is it changes our allegiance. And that's, that's who the devil is. The devil loves. It's not, the level, it's not that the devil doesn't love. He just loves himself. Whereas God created us to love selflessly, to love him and to love others. But God needed to create the capacity to love, to receive love and to give love. Something that he did do because 
if you can't give and receive something, it's not love, it's control. If we didn't have the capacity to love back, it's not really love. Love's a choice. It can only be real if it can be reciprocated or not reciprocated. And that is the cost of true love. That is the cost. It's vulnerability. It's putting yourself out there, knowing it might be reciprocated or it might not. But a God who overflows in selfless love, in selfless love, would allow that to overflow into creation all of us, going, this is the creation. And there's opportunity for love. And there's opportunity for rejection. But my overflow is love, is that I'm going to do that anyway. But where the non-Trinitarian God, when sin came into the world, would have just obliterated his creation and started again, because why would you keep going? <laughs> if you're a God who created out of either loneliness or power, you'd be like, Psh, let me restart. <laughs> remove, <laughs> restart. I don't like these guys after five minutes. Remove, restart. So God without love would do. <laughs> remove and restart. <laughs> he would have done it many, many, many times. <laughs> probably, probably every few seconds. So we, he would have done that, wiped out and started again. The Trinitarian, of, Trinitarian God of love, so overflowing, sorry, he always has been, his love overflows, so overflowing with love, he would demonstrate again the overflow of his love on the cross. To go, you think you've seen love? You think you've seen it in, in creation? You think I've seen it in what I've done for you? Well, actually, that's just a glimpse. In spite of rejection, I'm just going to love again. And I'm not going to just remove and eradicate I'm going to give opportunity again. I'm going to demonstrate again. And that is what the cross is about. This was again as Jesus, Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer, a physical demonstration on earth to show all who would hear that God is truly loving and that he is caring, making an ultimate way for us to experience and enjoy his love forever. And so as we look to Christmas, as I close off, the Trinity shines in exquisite beauty. And the reason why it shines is because it's an overflow of His love. It's God in acting and acting over and over again, the overflow of His love on a creation that in many respects has rejected Him, but that's not going to stop the overflow of who He is. He's going to show it again and again. The loving Father whose love overflows for the Son, inflamed and built up by the Spirit, chooses to let His love bubble over into a world He creates, a world overflowing with love, and the capacity to love in return. And this love overflows in spite of rejection by those he loves and comes into greatest clarity when we see Jesus enter our world, which we're going to hear about more next week. Let's pray together. Lord, I thank you that there are mysteries that we'll never completely grasp. I thank you that you show us enough. We're never going to know anything because those who are being created will never know all and it's great that we don't know all. We can leave it in your hands. But I thank you that we know enough and that we see enough. Thank you that 1 Corinthians says that now we see in part. But one day, we're going to see fully. But for now, while we see in part, Lord Jesus, thank you that you as the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, in loving submission to one another. Thank you that you just wanted to demonstrate that to us in creation. Thank you that you would create a world to demonstrate the overflow of your love. You'd create us in your image with the DNA of love built in, with the opportunity and possibility of rejection. You would do it anyway because real love is only love if there's opportunity for giving and taking. And Lord, thank you that when you could have wiped it clean, <laughs> That was impossible because in your DNA is love. 
And so you said, I can't wipe the slate clean. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to demonstrate again the overflow of my love for the created ones, the ones who've turned away, the ones who've walked the other direction, the ones who've turned from a selfless love to a selfish love, the ones who have created a divide, the ones who, have, who should be wiped out from the face of the earth, who should face absolute judgment. I'm going to show you my DNA again, and I'm going to step into the world, and I'm going to demonstrate more clearly and more visible than ever before what true love looks like. Thank you that you've, you've shown it to us, and thank you that next week we get to celebrate and look to you demonstrating again in the most visible of ways, the most physical of ways, your overflowing radical love for each of us. And I ask that each of us this Christmas would see that afresh. We would see afresh, Lord God, what it means that we follow the Trinitarian God, what it means that we follow you in all your fullness with our limited understanding, that we would see that afresh and it would blow us away. And what you did for us by coming to earth, stepping into our world and dying on a cross would come into incredible visibility, the love that you have for each of us. So Lord, wherever we are on the journey of faith, maybe you've walked in here today and if you're honest, as we've looked through 1 John, you'd sit there going, I've always said I believed in God, but I couldn't care less about his commands. I've always said I've followed Jesus, but I, 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 I couldn't really care less about walking in the light. Maybe, just maybe today, for the first time, you've caught the picture of who God really is. And I'd say, if that's you, go away, study, think, pray, receive. And maybe, just maybe, you'll realize that actually you need to repent and turn from a selfish love, a love of yourself, a love of things, a love of anything but God, and turn to the one who stepped into your world and say, Lord, it's time for me to follow the one who has a selfless love. Impact each of us, Lord. I ask that we'd be people who study and research and dive into your word, and that ultimately you would draw us closer and closer into a loving relationship with you each and every day. In your name we pray. Amen.